Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. More and more schools around New England are working to become trauma-informed. They have such adult worries, some of them. Money. Um, Who's picking me up? How am I getting home? Can I do these after-school activities? Can we afford this? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll go into the classroom to learn how schools are adapting to a new way of teaching. And big demand for offshore wind power is breaking records at auction. This is just uh, unprecedented. We'll also go with a Boston legal aid team to Tijuana to hear from people waiting to apply for asylum. They have walked, they have come at such a tremendous way, um, but don't really have a sense of the process. Plus, we'll explore new trends in Christmas trees. So by keeping these young trees planted, harvested, replanted, that whole cycle, we're really ensuring some very productive trees as far as oxygen, oxygen production. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. It's been a bad fall for gas customers in a big chunk of our region. In September, a series of explosions across the Merrimack Valley in Massachusetts destroyed homes, killing one person and injuring dozens. Only now is service being fully restored to those Columbia gas customers. Meanwhile, one of the state's other big gas companies, National Grid, has locked out more than 1,200 workers who inspect gas lines for safety. In Rhode Island, a consumer rights group is working to keep National Grid from shutting off service to low-income customers who can't afford to pay their bills but also can't afford to be without heat. From the Publix Radio in Rhode Island, Avery Brookins reports. Kanika Kendall remembers the winter of 2017 too well. The gas in her Pawtucket apartment had been shut off that spring by Rhode Island's biggest utility, National Grid. That meant no heat and no gas stove. For nine months, she relied on an electric hot plate to cook meals for her five kids. And I used to heat up the water like that so I can put my children in the tub. Kendall tells me her story at her job, a Dunkin' Donuts in Pawtucket. Here, she makes $10.25 an hour, which barely helps pay her $200 a month gas bill, plus the hundreds of dollars she still owes National Grid. After her gas was shut off last year, Kendall says the company wanted about $500 to turn it back on. Kendall didn't have federal heating assistance at the time, so she had to wait for her tax returns before she could afford to pay her bill. She says that was a very depressing time. Because I just felt like I wasn't a good enough parent because my gas was off. And it's like I have to provide for them, and I felt like I couldn't provide them. So far this year, more than 5,600 National Grid gas customers and more than 12,000 electricity customers in Rhode Island have been shut off. Kimberly Frodelius, a compliance manager from National Grid's Credits and Collections Unit, says a customer's power is not shut off immediately after they miss a payment. We take a lot of measures to try and reach out to those customers and and make sure that they know that they have options. They have payment plan options. They have assistance program options. Uh, because service termination is always a last resort for us. But a welfare rights organization called the George Riley Center says National Grid doesn't always comply with Rhode Island's shutoff laws. The center sued National Grid in 2015 for terminating the utilities of thousands of people who have serious medical problems. 
Since then, a few thousand people have gotten their power back and are protected from being shut off again. But the George Riley Center is still in negotiations with National Grid's regulators to get even stronger protections on the books for seriously ill customers. National Grid declined to comment on the lawsuit. At 8.30, call that number, and, and you do not leave a message? You want to hear someone and speak to someone live? The Wiley Center is hosting its weekly meeting. That's when volunteers and employees sit down with utility customers who are struggling to afford their bills. They let them know what their next step should be. Sometimes it's signing up for a payment plan. Other times it's submitting paperwork to receive some protection from shutoffs. People are being harmed. People, Families are being torn apart because they can't afford their utilities. That's Camille Viveris. He's the coordinator of the George Wiley Center. We have people every week coming in that are living in their car because they can't afford their utilities, you know, even with all the programs that we've helped win. One being the Arrears Management Program, or AMP. AMP is a program for lower-income residents who owe National Grid money. If the customer pays their utility bills on time for a year, then up to $1,500 of their debt is forgiven. But Pawtucket resident Kanika Kindell says the AMP program isn't generous enough. She enrolled in AMP after her gas was shut off last year, but she has since defaulted because National Grid requires customers on the program to pay a monthly rate that's an average of their bills throughout the year, a rate that Kendall says is still unaffordable. And that's what I was trying to explain to them. If I had it, I would pay it. I don't have it. I can do 25 maybe even $30 a month, but they don't understand that. The George Riley Center believes a percentage of income payment plan, or PIP, is the solution. Under PIP, lower-income families pay a percentage of their annual income for their utilities each month. And Rhode Island actually offered PIP back in the late 80s and early 90s in certain parts of the state, but the program was cut when federal funding ran out. Viveris says PIP worked well for people who couldn't afford their gas and electricity. And there's really no policy reason why it shouldn't be brought back. But National Grid's regulators, the Rhode Island Division of Public Utilities and Carriers, do see one policy challenge. Administrator Mackie McCleary says PIP hides the ratepayer's consumption signal, which shows how much energy a customer uses each month. And the more of it that we consume, um, the more it costs for everyone. Uh, And so it's important for all the members of the society that are part of that social contract to be aware of the value of that so that they reduce their consumption as much as possible to only the amount that's necessary. And National Grid says it would be tough to afford the extra staff that would be needed to work with the thousands of customers that would be eligible for PIP. But utility customers that are struggling financially, whether they're unemployed, elderly, or handicapped, aren't completely on their own. National Grid offers protected status for them, which means they're eligible for up to 30% off their bills and can't have their services shut off during the wintertime. Back at Dunkin' Donuts in Pawtucket, Kanika Kendell tells me she used to work at a Dunkin's in Boston before moving to Rhode Island. She made more money there and didn't struggle paying for utilities because heat was included in her rent. She also received funds from a program aimed at preventing families from becoming homeless. Kendell doesn't have that funding anymore, and she's trying to figure out ways to budget even tighter. But at the same time, I have children and they have needs also, so it's really hard. So I'm trying to just learn how to budget more and get them to, like, get us all on the same page. Because I don't know what else to do. At least for the next year and a half, her power can't be shut off because she has a five-month-old baby, and it's illegal for National Grid to terminate power in any household where there's a child under the age of two. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Avery Brookins in Providence. 
At the end of November, the Trump administration approved the first steps toward oil drilling in the Atlantic Ocean, allowing companies to conduct what are called seismic tests. That's what the seismic air guns that are used to explore for oil and gas on the ocean floor sound like underwater. The sound we just heard was recorded thousands of kilometers away from where the seismic testing was taking place off of Nova Scotia, and it was sped up so we could more easily hear it. Since that announcement, aquariums around the East Coast voiced concerns that these tests could be harmful to a variety of marine animals, including one that we've talked a lot about, the endangered North Atlantic right whale. While the deaths of these whales from fishing lines and other reasons are a big problem, the largest challenge facing the whales is declining birth rates. Now, here's Charles Stormy Mayo, director of the Right Whale Ecology Program at the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown. We are looking at extinction. If a species doesn't reproduce, eventually it's gone. So the business of, of, of low calving is as horrific an issue as the mortality. And scientists fear that these tests could make the problem of the North Atlantic right whales declining birth rates even worse. We called up Darlene Ketton to learn more about what these tests might mean for marine animals. She's senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Darlene, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe you can talk about what the seismic testing would, would be like, what it would sound like. Sure. Um, that's actually an interesting question. How does it sound? From my perspective, I work on hearing in marine animals and in people, in fact. And uh, one of the basic issues is what does every species hear? They're not the same. So I can tell you how a seismic sound sounds to me. It sounds like a boom, boom, boom. But I can't tell you exactly what it sounds like to one species of whale versus another species of whale, because, of course, I'm not literally inside their heads. What I can tell you is what we know from their ears, what we know from hearing tests that have been done, and that's the interesting part for seismic. That is something like a bottlenose dolphin or an Atlantic white-sided dolphin or a harbor porpoise, which is, are all very common up and down the East Coast. Those each have different hearing abilities. They tend to hear what we call ultrasonic sounds outside the human hearing range, whereas baleen whales hear best at lower to middle frequencies. Our great concern for seismics, because that's a sound source that is at very low frequencies, usually between uh, 10 to 500 hertz. For that reason, we're mostly worried about baleen whales, but we also have to be worried about disturbances from those high-frequency side lobes, they're called, that come out of the seismic sources. Um, and those could be disturbing to something like a harbor porpoise. We're not entirely sure how this could affect the behavior of different species of whales or other marine creatures because we don't exactly know what frequencies, we don't exactly know what the hearing is like for each one of these animals. But it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that uh, there very well could be some sort of disturbance. Does that mean that a, that a whale that hears a, a seismic blast wants to avoid that area altogether and maybe not swim in waters where it might normally swim? Or is there some other behavioral effect we, we might see? 
There are a lot of potential behavioral effects, and you've brought up a very good point, um, which is how do we go about preventing the harm? How do we manage to um, understand and also to make, uh, make it safe for these animals if we can? Some frequencies, low frequencies travel farther than high frequencies, so you often have to mitigate a very large area. But it is still possible that there can be animals that will come in or away, and if they're exposed to these sounds, the first thing might be a startle response, and they might be repelled by it and go away, and that could be temporary. The critical thing is if these sounds occur repeatedly and at such a level that the animals are really disturbed and move away from it, if it's a feeding ground, if it's a mating area, if it's a migratory corridor that the animals have to go through and they deviate, of course that costs them some metabolic problem. They, they may not get enough food. They may have to take a much longer route. Just like we burn up gas, they burn up calories. Um, it may disturb them from mating. The critical species for this immediate question is the northern Atlantic right whale. That's an incredibly endangered population. We're down to around 400 animals. So a disturbance of any one of those animals that makes them non-viable, that cuts down their reproduction, that's a very serious issue. Darlene Ketton, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. A wind power auction for three plots of ocean off the coast of Massachusetts broke a record last week. It was the highest price ever paid in a U.S. wind lease auction. Just three years ago, in 2015, those same lots were up for auction and they didn't sell. So what changed over the past three years and what does it mean for offshore wind? Barbara Moran is here to tell us more. She's a senior producing editor for WBUR's environmental coverage. Barbara, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. So first of all, explain how this auction works exactly. So this is a auction run by the uh, Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and they had 19 registered bidders. They all bid online. Um, so you couldn't see who the bidders were, but you could see the bids as they're going up and up all day. Um, and they would update every 20 minutes or so. Everybody's kind of glued to their screen watching this. And then uh, it went all day Thursday. They stopped for the night and they finished up on Friday. And how much did these lots go for? I mean, what what, what was the big news here? <laughs> the big news was they sold for about $135 million each, which is more than $1,000 an acre. So that's a, that's a lot of money. I mean, was this surprising to people? It was a huge amount of money, and it was beyond <laughs> surprising, right? I mean, they, they started the bids at $2 an acre, and it ended up at $1,000 an acre. And it blew away the previous record, which was set in 2016, where some leases off the coast of New York sold for about 535 an acre. So this was like... Huge. I mean, people expected it would be big, but not this big. It, it was big, and it sounds like it was actually kind of exciting. It was actually really. I kind of got swept in in it. I mean, I don't have any, you know, money in this game and all, <laughs> but it was it was really exciting to watch, and it went so far beyond people's expectations. And I was actually talking to a wind expert during the day, and she was like, "I can't stop." pressing refresh, you know, or everybody was like just refreshing their screen over and over. So these same lots, as we said, were up for auction in 2015. Explain what happened back then. Yeah. So four years ago, the government put these four lots up for auction. 
Uh, two of them sold. One sold for a buck fifty an acre. One sold for a little less than a dollar an acre. And two of them didn't sell at all. They got no bids. So those two that got no bids, and this is only three years ago, right? The two that got no bids were divvied back up into three lots, and those were put on sale. Okay, so that's just a few years ago, and and even back the way back then in 2015, offshore wind was a thing to a limited extent in the United States, but it was huge in Europe. How is it possible that it was so valueless back then, and it's so big right now? Yeah, right. That's the big question that I went and asked everybody. Like, what happened in three years to change this so much? So uh, people told me two things. One is that the technology got better, the wind turbines got more efficient, and the second, the big thing is that there's a market. Now there's a guaranteed market. Massachusetts and some other states um, put a mandate up that they would buy a certain amount of power from offshore wind. And that made the whole venture much less risky. So I went and asked a bunch of experts about this. Here's Patrick Woodcock. He's the Assistant Secretary of Energy for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So there's a a combination of public policies that Massachusetts has put forward and also uh, technology development that has really moved pricing to a much more competitive level. So it's more price competitive now. And of course, Massachusetts has created this this market. What do you think this all means for the future of renewables after this this big auction? Right. As I tweeted out right right after the auction, I have seen the future and it is wind power. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think this really represents a a turning point for offshore wind. And it's going to be a big part of the energy mix in New England and a big part of the economy in New England with all of the um, support services that are going to have to be onshore. Um, I talked to Stephanie McClellan, who's the director of the Special Initiative on Offshore Wind at the University of Delaware. She's a national wind expert, and here's what she had to say about it. This is just uh, unprecedented, and what it really shows is that uh, new entrants are really, really uh, confident that there is an offshore wind market shaping up in the United States um, and that they want in. And I just want to make it clear to our audience, Barbara, that these lots that we're talking about now, uh, these are different than the ones that there are already um, wind power plants planned for off of the coast of Massachusetts and elsewhere. So there's already plans in the works. That's correct. There's uh, two lots that sold in 2015. There are plans in the works, and one of them is further along, and that's the Vineyard Wind plot. So before we spoke with you on the show, we, we talked to a scientist who described the impact of seismic testing on marine mammals, especially the North Atlantic right whale. That's a whale that we've been covering quite a bit. There's only about 400 of them left in the world. Um, there have been concerns about the impact of wind farms as well on all sorts of marine mammals. Actually, we have a, a sound that was recorded about 10 meters underwater near a wind farm in Sweden. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds terrible. And from what we've heard from uh, some of WBUR's reporting in the past and also some of the scientists we've talked to, this can be really distressing to marine mammals. What do we what do we know about the impact of offshore wind turbines if we're going to get so many more off the coast of Massachusetts and New England? Yeah, uh, ocean noise is definitely a huge concern, not just from the wind turbines, but from the additional shipping and uh, vineyard wind. Um, who's the has the plot that's the furthest along just released its environmental impact statement. Um, and they do say that there will be impacts on marine mammals. They they don't think that they'll be severe. So but that, you know, remains to be seen a little bit. The um, the environmental impact statement just is up for open comment in January. And I expect that there'll be some uh, might be a little pushback from the marine mammal people. Barbara Moran is the environment editor for WBUR. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It was great. 
Coming up, how a school in Western Massachusetts became trauma-informed. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Thousands of migrants, many of them from Central America, are waiting in Tijuana, Mexico, for a chance to apply for asylum in the U.S. It's a fluid situation on the ground there. Many of these migrants are shuffling between tents and shelters, and volunteers are passing out meals and warm clothing. A group of Boston University law instructors and students was in Tijuana over the last weekend offering legal advice. WBUR's Shannon Dooling was there, and she has this report for us. Every morning around 7.30, large crowds of people gather in the plaza at El Chaparral, a border crossing near San Ysidro, California. Families huddle together around their belongings. Young children are wearing pajamas and carrying backpacks. Some of them entertain themselves with a pickup game of soccer, kicking around an empty plastic bottle of Sprite. They're all here hoping this will be the day their numbers are called from the asylum waitlist. There are an estimated 5,000 people on the list waiting for their turn to enter the U.S. and apply for asylum. That's a humanitarian immigration status. Many of those on the list have been in Tijuana for months, coming from other cities in Mexico and places as far away as Sierra Leone and Haiti. The Boston University law instructors and students circulate throughout the crowd, asking people if they have questions about how to seek asylum. One of the BU students, Jesus Zelaya, is of Honduran and Salvadoran descent. He says that's a big motivator for him being down here. Coming from an immigrant background, I just I understand the challenges and struggles of being an immigrant. And this allows me essentially to reflect about how my life would be if I was still in El Salvador, if I grew up in El Salvador, and I wouldn't be in law school. Zelaya hands out pamphlets about migrant rights. He explains the asylum process to many of the people waiting in the plaza. Julie Dahlstrom is a clinical associate professor at BU Law and heads up the Immigrants' Rights Clinic there. Dahlstrom is speaking with a woman who says she fled cartel violence in Michoacan, Mexico. Dahlstrom says most of the migrants she spoke with had little knowledge of their rights or the risks associated with applying for asylum. They have walked, they have come at such a tremendous way, um, but don't really have a sense of the process. So for most of the people we interviewed, they have tremendous fears of, um, of some form of persecution in their country, but now it's increasingly hard to qualify. And so, um, so they didn't quite understand that, and I think it became hard for them to understand if I was denied, what would I do next with my life? It's about a 15-minute walk from El Chaparral to a tent city that's popped up outside of Benito Juarez soccer stadium. A few weeks ago, an estimated 6,000 migrants were living here. That number has dropped to about 500 since the Mexican government opened a large shelter outside of Tijuana. 45-year-old Edgar Venegas steps out of a green camping tent in which he and his nephew have been living for more than a month. Venegas is from El Salvador, but he says he lived in Danbury, Connecticut for a few years with temporary protected status. He shows us his Connecticut driver's license. 
Venegas explains that he walked north for more than two months with the migrant caravan because he wants to be with his children, who are both U.S. citizens. He tells us he worked in construction and as a painter when he lived in Connecticut. He says when he went home to El Salvador to visit in 2016, he then tried to return to the U.S. He was stopped at the San Salvador airport because of what he calls a clerical error on his paperwork. His hope now is to apply for asylum along with many of the others who traveled north. He says his name is on the wait list and he expects his number will be called in a month or so. Back at El Chaparral, the crowds continue to gather. One woman's number is called and she hugs family members standing next to her. They have a different number. They all cry a little together, smiling. She's been waiting for a month and a half for her chance to apply for asylum. She gathers her children and a few bags of belongings, and they rush around the corner, setting off on the next stage of their journey. That was WBUR reporter Shannon Dooling reporting from Tijuana. Officials from the Mexican government come to Vermont a few times a year to help farm workers who are Mexican citizens renew their passports or obtain other documents. This event is also a social gathering for the workers who spend much of their time in isolation on farms across that state. But as VPR's John Dillon reports, this year's mobile consulate comes at a time of increasing tension for Mexicans in Vermont. Twice a year, in summer and early winter, the Mexican government sets up a mobile consulate office in Vermont. The winter session is held in Middlebury, and at the local Unitarian Church, dozens of farm workers waited patiently for their names to be called for passport photos and new IDs. But they also came to socialize and share a meal of takeout pizza and home-cooked tamales. In many occasions, it is families. Maybe not every person is getting a document, but um, there is a feeling of home. Graciela Gomez-Garcia is the acting consul general of Mexico in Boston. She took a break Saturday from processing documents to talk about the consulate visit. She says the office usually sees about 200 people at the day-long event. It's a time of great uncertainty for Mexican farm workers in Vermont. The Trump administration moved the immigration debate to the political front burner in the 2018 elections and federal agencies continue to crack down on people who may be in the country illegally. But Gomez-Garcia says the Middlebury event helps affirm the common humanity between different cultures. As you notice, we also have local volunteers who uh, prepare uh, coffee and treats and food, who uh, are donating uh, warm clothes. So it always warms my heart. Uh, the fact that we come to Middlebury early December, near Christmas, always ratify my faith in humankind. Luis, a young farm worker who lives in Cornwall, has worked here for 14 years, but he's not in the country legally, so he doesn't want his real name used. He's at the Middlebury Consulate, not to get help with his passport or paperwork, but for the food. I'm just here for a little while, and I'm actually like, I'm here to like eat something, and just like, this has got to be my breakfast, and if I can get something here, so... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm planning for. Luis drove here to Middlebury. He got his license several years ago under a Vermont law that allows undocumented people to get a driver's privilege card. You can't live without a car. People live on cars. You know, you, can't, you don't have the grocery store like two, three minutes away or five minutes away. You got, you know, you got like 10 minutes away, but driving, 
So he's concerned about allegations outlined in a recent federal lawsuit that officials at the Vermont Department of Motor Vehicles turned over names and identification information to agents at Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. I think that people is just going to think about more to trying to get a license if the information goes to another place. The Mexican consulate is also concerned about the allegations in the lawsuit, but Acting Consul General Gomez Garcia is careful not to criticize U.S. policy. I understand that this might be yet another expression of a further enforcement of uh, immigration regulations, um, internal uh, information sharing between uh, agencies. But to the extent that it uh, affects Mexican citizens, we are truly concerned and uh, we are following the story quite closely. One way to deal with undocumented workers and the need for labor on Vermont farms would be some kind of guest worker program that would allow people to be here legally, a proposal backed by Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy. Gomez-Garcia points out that the remedy there lies with the U.S. Congress. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. For many people who live outside Massachusetts' westernmost county, the Berkshires evokes an image of beautiful rolling hills and world-renowned arts venues. And all of that, of course, is true. But a group of locals are recognizing a more worrisome aspect of the region, the trauma that many residents live with. They're joining a national trend of communities that preach empathy, awareness, and patience. Today, we'll visit an elementary school in Berkshire County that's trying to create a kinder environment, and not just for kids who are under stress. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown has this report. Other than its bucolic setting in the Berkshire Mountains, Lee Elementary seems like any other public school, if the morning announcement is any indication. Today's lunch is today, turkey taco salad, fruit and milk. Applications for the talent show are... But there are some unusual touches, like posters of a five-point scale. They're all over the building. Each number corresponds to a mood with a smiley or frowny face. And when students enter a room, they'll tap the number that reflects their mood. If you're three or above, you need to seek help from an adult. As Principal Kate Retzel explains this approach towards stressed-out kids, she gets a call on her walkie-talkie that illustrates the point. Kate, I could use a hand if you got a minute. Assure where you're located. They've got a runner, a kid's trying to leave the building. I say it's the full moon. (laughs) Lunar cycles aside, Retzel is not surprised a child is worked up before classes even begin. Despite the many arts and tourist venues of Berkshire County, rates of unemployment, poverty, and opioid abuse are rising. That's why Retzel has spent the last year trying to turn Lee Elementary into what's called a trauma-informed school. The goal is to train the whole staff to be attuned to stress in children's lives. People who have been around education for a long time thought it was all behavior-based, just that it was all a choice. But now that we know that it's all brain-based, we know that there are things that we can do. She got this idea in part from a campaign called Trauma-Informed Berkshires, which is aimed at the entire community, from police to libraries to educators. But before Retzel even heard the term trauma-informed, she knew something in her school had to change. About two years ago, we had, um, I wouldn't call it an uprising, I'd call it like a grassroots effort by teachers who were seeing an increase in behaviors. More children were getting upset and unruly, and traditional discipline wasn't working. So they were wreaking havoc on classrooms because they 
couldn't focus. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about, you know, mom in jail and I'm trying to learn ABCs or, you know, I'm thinking of dad had to be taken to the hospital last night for an OD. So she hired a consultant to help change the school's culture. So basically teachers started looking at um, not just curriculum, but ways to infuse compassion into the day. Okay, hands down. Let's switch gears to what we To demonstrate, we visit Jessica Pollard's second grade class. Each morning, students are encouraged to write down their darkest thoughts or fears. Right now, please read what you wrote down to yourself and then choose one of the options. Options are throw the page away, keep it, or rip it out of your journal and leave it on the teacher's desk. How does this help? Who would like to share? So we can get rid of our worries and not worry. Retzel, the principal, says several students in this class have witnessed domestic violence. Two have diagnoses of PTSD. Some have parents in jail. Come right back to your regular spot. After the journal writing, the teacher takes them through a few mindfulness exercises. Okay, so we're going to blow up our balloon. Ready? Take a deep breath. Push it down and blow out. Only then does she bring up the lesson. Raise your hand if you're ready for math. Three-digit addition and subtraction today. As we leave the classroom, the teacher hands Retzel a few journal entries left on her desk. So these are the ones they're willing to share. Um, I'm worried about when my mom dies and when I die. Uh, On the weekend, my cat died. My guess is she's going to check further into that student for the day. Many changes at the school are not obviously about trauma, and that's the point. They're meant to help the entire student body cope with everyday stress. So there's new seating. There's a stool that rocks. Lessons in self-esteem. I make mistakes. It's okay. It's okay. And frequent brain breaks. Blink your eyes quickly. Blink, blink. Blink, blink, blink. It took a little convincing, but over time... The teachers realize that if you take 15, 20 minutes out of your day to do stuff like that, you're going to prevent the 15 or 20 minutes it's going to take you to have to deal with an escalation. Since the school has gone trauma-informed, even mental health professionals are changing how they interact with children. Before, school psychologist Rachel Widrick would mostly give tests and assessments. Now she forms relationships. So Mason, you I'm going to sit next to Mason or Darren. Okay, well then Darren will come sit by me, right Darren? Several fourth graders have just shown up in Widrick's office of their own accord to eat their lunch and play the card game Uno. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Four. How's it going today? Not good. Oh, what's going on? I got four strikes. Oh, you got four? They have such adult worries, some of them. Money. Um, Who's picking me up? How am I getting home? Can I do these after-school activities? Can we afford this? And while much of the kids' home stress is invisible to teachers, some isn't. About half the school qualifies for free or reduced lunch, which is one proxy for poverty. Diane Noventi is the school nurse. I saw a significant number of kids that would come to school hungry, coming to my office, headaches, uh, belly aches. At least this they can address directly. As an after-school program, students and staff put together food kits to send home with families for the weekend. There was a time in my family that my mom didn't have a job and we, we, were, we didn't have a car and so we didn't have food for a while. This sixth grader is both a volunteer with the program 
and a recipient. When the first time that my family got a box of food, my mom cried because she was so happy that she that we were going to be able to make good dinners that that week with the stuff that we got. And then we got stuff to make a tuna casserole. While the student was telling me her story, one teacher had to leave the room. She later said it was too painful to hear. And in fact, several staff members say grief has become part of the job. School counselor Heather Lucy sees addiction, incarceration, and mental illness. I love my job, but there are some days where I am absolutely drained because of the things that I've heard or helped a family through. And she doesn't always get support outside the school for what they're doing. She may refer families to counseling services in the community, but wait lists can be months long. Providers change, providers switch, there's turnover. You know, the wait is really hard, and that frustration will build, you know, in a family. Principal Kate Retzel has learned to accept that schools alone, however trauma-sensitive, are not a panacea. They struggle with budgets, with standardized tests. But even if schools can't make up for society's problems, Retzel says they can give children some tools to cope with them. When I see a kiddo who can trudge through a a day despite what's going on outside of their life, I always say, geez, I'd love to bottle that, (laughs) you know, so I can give it to some kids who don't have enough. But I do think we are building this generation of kiddos who are more accepting of struggle, more knowledgeable about, you know what, I'm not a bad person. My brain is reacting to to something, and this is how I can calm myself. And if the school succeeds with this generation, there could be less trauma in the next one. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Karen's story is part of a week-long series from New England Public Radio that looks at the genesis of a campaign called Trauma-Informed Berkshires. There's more on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a reporter finds a decorated Christmas tree while out walking in the woods. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Picture, if you will, the classic Victorian Christmas, a stately evergreen in the grandest room of the family home with thick boughs reaching up to almost touch the ceiling. It's a pretty vision, but these days the trend sees more consumers downsizing, even opting for tiny potted trees that can be replanted. Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell reports on the market for tiny trees. This little green one here seems to need a home. I don't know, Charlie Brown. Remember what Lucy said? This doesn't seem to fit the modern spirit. Remember this scene from A Charlie Brown Christmas when Charlie Brown goes shopping for a tree for the neighborhood Christmas play? He passes by a lot filled with big, flashy trees and chooses instead a scrawny sapling, which draws withering scorn from his friends. (laughs) What a tree! I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Or perhaps Charlie Brown was just ahead of his time. Our, our business is leaning towards uh, shorter trees than it used to. We used to sell a lot of eight, nine, ten-foot trees. That's Dana Graves, who's been growing Christmas trees for more than 40 years with G&S Christmas Tree Farm. Today, he's showing off a row of neat, bushy little balsam firs for sale, none higher than four feet, at Sprague's Nursery in Bangor. That little one on the end, yeah, that's a tabletop tree. 
Somebody will put in their house in a small apartment on the table, yep. The farm still produces plenty of taller trees, too, but Graves says it's pretty rare these days to get orders for anything higher than seven feet. Found a good one, huh, guys? Yep. Awesome. Want it wrapped up? Several miles away at Carpenter Tree Farm in Old Town, Jeff and Jillian Woodbury are complete newbies in the Christmas tree business. It's just their second season. But they, too, say they're finding some brisk trade in catering to customers who are looking for something other than that giant centerpiece tree. Like these guys said, they're on the second floor of an apartment house, so they got to climb two sets of stairs. We get a lot of college kids um, or small apartments, so... They're looking for something smaller, more manageable to get in and out of their apartment, maybe up some stairs. There was one couple with six flights of stairs, I believe. So that was a long haul with a big tree. We, they were looking for something more four foot or smaller. Makes it much easier for them. <laughs> it's all part of a trend, says Marsha Gray with the National Christmas Tree Association. Older Americans, she says, and those with no kids at home have always been more likely to demand a small tree, but they didn't have many options. In the past, small trees, what we call a tabletop, now at times it was the top of a bad tree or it was a tree that got a ding at the bottom or something. Now we have growers specifically culturing trees to be a tabletop. That entails special trimming so the mini tree bushes out into a nice full shape. Another factor that helped develop a little tree market was an interior decorating trend that started about 10 years ago as homeowners started putting up multiple trees in dining rooms, living rooms, porches, and windows instead of just the one big central tree. We saw a lot of parents buying small trees for their children's bedrooms. They each got their own little tree. All of this contributed to the emergence of a burgeoning little tree industry, which is just now coming into full flower. A healthy market for little trees could also be good news for a farmer's bottom line, as they take less time to grow. It takes a full decade to grow a six-foot tree, while small trees can be turned over in about half the time. And that, in turn, has another benefit, says Gray. Keeping large tracts of land in constant production helps offset greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, something she says is important to many consumers who seek a natural Christmas tree. Younger trees are much more efficient at taking in the carbon dioxide and outputting the oxygen. The older a tree gets, the slower that process. So by keeping these young trees planted, harvested, replanted, that whole cycle we're really ensuring some very productive trees as far as oxygen oxygen production. Along the same line, some growers are offering tiny potted trees that can be set out after the season. But Gray says that effort has met with limited success simply because not everyone has a green thumb. I never thought it was such a bad little tree. It's not bad at all, really. Maybe it just needs a little love. Gray says there will always be a market for a big, impressive tree that skims the cathedral ceiling, but there's no longer a Charlie Brown stigma to having a little one. That was Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell reporting. No matter the size of the tree you decide to put in your living room, there's an inescapable fact about Christmas trees. When you cut one down, you kill the tree. And that makes many people, well, very uncomfortable. Should we really be sacrificing a living thing to sit in our home for a few weeks, only to leave its dried corpse at the side of the road come January? Well, sure, you can buy a live tree with a root ball, but just try to get that into the winter ground. And, well, there's always the fake tree root, but that doesn't exactly scream New England Christmas, does it? 
Well, what if there was a sustainable way to go out and get a decorative Christmas tree that leaves the tree alive? We found a Massachusetts Christmas tree farm that does just this. The technique is called coppicing, and here to tell us more is Emmett Van Dreisch. He's the owner of the Pirapan Christmas Tree Farm in Ashfield, Massachusetts. Emmett, welcome to Next. Hey, thanks so much. So what is coppicing? <laughs> so coppicing is uh, an ancient technique of cutting a tree down, and then it will regrow. And it's usually done with deciduous trees, uh, where it's very straightforward. It doesn't matter where you cut the deciduous tree, the stump will usually send out some sprouts. But uh, the unusual thing about our farm is that it's done with conifers. And for most conifer trees, if you, if you cut a conifer to the ground, it will die. Um, and so most people don't realize it's possible. But what we do is we leave a skirt of live branches below our cut, and th- those live branches leave the stump alive, and it continues to put out tree after tree from the same stump. So, so describe what it would be like if you went out to a Christmas tree farm that practices this technique, and you, you get your saw, and you're out there in the snow, and it's, yeah. uh, it's very Christmassy. I mean, what does it look like? How is it different than going to a traditional Christmas tree farm? It's very different. So your <laughs> typical Christmas tree farm is straight rows of trees on a fairly level piece of land, um, and you go out and you cut the tree all the way to the ground. Our farm is much more like a managed forest, and so it it can feel quite uh, wild and untamed in places, and that's because the skirt of branches that leaves the stump alive, they grow out, and every three or four years I cut them back and use the branches to make wreaths or sell to other wreath makers. And so depending on the area you're in and how recently I've harvested those branches, they can be uh, quite bushy and sticking out into the path. and, um, And then the stumps themselves over the decades turn into these giant, crazy things where you can see the, the places where each tree came off of them. So our tree farm is about 60 years old, and on some of the oldest stumps, you can see where seven or eight different trees came off the same stump. So it turns into this quite a wild experience. Emmett Van Dreisch is co-owner of the Pirapan Christmas Tree Farm in Ashfield, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for sharing some time with us, and happy holidays to you. Thanks so much. You as well. One last Christmas story for you. Reporter Sean Hurley was walking through the New Hampshire woods when he came across an unusual and festive sight. I was out walking last week on the Pine Flat Ski Trail in my hometown of Thornton. It's not flat. I've never seen a skier there. But there are pines. The trail runs alongside Smart's Brook. And as the trail rises, the brook falls away into a deep, moss-clad gorge. At the height of land, there's a pine forest. Green triangles everywhere as my son Sam once said. And it was here, amongst these green triangles, about a half mile from the road, that I found a fully decorated Christmas tree. Next day, I took my wife and son to see it. We brought along an ornament to hang on the tree, to sort of add to it, to join up with whoever it was that decorated it in the first place. But halfway there, we came upon a group of seven men decorating their own tree beside the path. We did this a while ago, actually, in Peterborough on a hike. And I think we just thought about, oh, what a cool thing to do. Um, And we went out on a hike and we decorated a tree. We brought presents with us. um, And we exchanged presents at the same time. And with a Christmas party planned for today at his house, Mike Bover thought it was time to do it again. So we decided, why not go for a hike uh, before we have the party and find a tree to decorate? I mean, I put out the idea, no one said, what a crazy idea, right? You guys are okay with it, right? I think it's great. 
It's happiness. It brings a smile to your face. We all brought something. Rob LaVerger holds up a red star and a silver bell as Rick McCurdy removes and hides his jingle bell hat and handful of ornaments as though the Christmas police might be nearby. I feel like I'm going to get arrested. So whose idea was this? Who did the decorations? <laughs> and if the Christmas police ever did ask them these questions, John Norman has an answer. We're going to come back in March and take everything down. So we are going to check on it every now and then. Maybe people will add to this one also. Or maybe the tree next to it will start getting decorated and we'll have a little Christmas tree decorated contest. Yeah, yeah, there'll be like three trees, four trees, five trees decorated in this area. Yeah. We'll start a new tradition out here. After Rob LaVerger sets his red star on the top of their tree, the seven continue their hike until they come upon the decorated tree I found the day before. Yeah, they didn't bring it all the way to the top. There's no tree toppers, so ours is much better. <laughs> well, what's kind of nice about it is someone is doing it on behalf of not really themselves, but for other people. In the middle of nowhere. It's like, what were they thinking? My wife and son find an empty space in the tree and hang our ornament as the seven wild Christmas tree decorators head off. And as we leave the land of green triangles, my son points out that we're going to have to come back. There's another tree we need to help decorate. That's NHPR's Sean Hurley reporting. He produced that piece back in 2016, but we did hear from him that this year there are two trees decorated in those very same woods. You can find our program wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England and you can subscribe for free. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. Katie Talarski is the executive producer, and Carlos Mejia is the digital producer. Composer Todd Merrill wrote our theme song. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Publix Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. 